Hi everyone, before this episode begins, I'd just like to remind you that it was originally recorded last week, last Tuesday. Since then, decided to delay it, so not sure when you're listening at this point. But I would remind or encourage you to go and listen to the Black Lives Matter resources podcast we released instead, where I copied a list from Girls Gone Canon of resources and educational materials and things you should be looking at before you start talking about these fictional books that we'll talk about. I've decided to leave this episode unedited, so everything is being addressed in this episode still, before we get on with the main show of Feast for Crows. Remember to keep educating yourselves, keep supporting the Black Lives Matter movement, and keep doing what I'm sure you're already doing. Thanks everyone. Good morning and welcome back to the Isle of Faces. Welcome back to Scraps and Scrolls. This is part one of A Feast for Crows. Yes, we have made it back. Thank you for joining me, Sir Buckley, your resident green person here on the Isle of Faces. I hope you had a nice little break and are ready to get going again. We've got plenty to talk about. I am speaking to you from a very, very sunny England. We've had a glorious run of amazing weather and nice hot air and brilliant times and I wish I could say the same for the rest of the world I think you can probably already tell that's not a particularly infused start for me and my voice part of that I will apologize is because pollen scale has reached the Isle of Faces shores yes my nose and throat and mouth are all blocked up so I apologize straight off here because there'll probably be a bit too much sniffing and well I'll cut out any sneezing for you but you can probably hear I'm a bit bunged up, but I wish that was the only reason um, my voice didn't have as much joy as perhaps it should for our first episode here. But unfortunately, I am talking to you from a time that is not so sunny for our planet and our people as a society. Now, I don't have anything written down. I'm not kind of uh, reading from my own script here. So again, forgive me. I don't really know what to say. Unfortunately, as you all know, depending on when you listen to this, there are very tough, frustrating things going on across the shores from, from where I am um, in the US in terms of the Black Lives Matter movement and, and everything happening there with the riots and all the just <sighs> tough times for everyone. And like I said, I don't really know what to say about it. Firstly, I'm not particularly qualified to talk on such a subject other than the fact I'm a member of the human race that is so afflicted by these problems, it does affect everyone, and I, I don't know how to address it, to be honest. I spoke about this on the Patreon page, so apologies if you're a patron and kind of uh, having to hear this again. But it's tough to know how to address it. With COVID, it was quite easy because the, the idea was distract everyone, just try and uh, distract everyone from this tough time. So just put out a podcast and maybe you'll be able to steal them away from it for a couple of hours. That's not really what we're trying to do here because this is the opposite problem. This is, we don't want to ignore this. We want to look, we want to see what's going on with the police here and what they've done and we want to see the the movement and what, how we can support it and how we can educate ourselves. So how do I best do that on a podcast that is about these made-up books with dragons and stuff? And it's tough because this is actually the third time I've tried to record this intro and I've really not, well, I might, I might have to do a fourth in a bit because, again, I don't really know how to do it and it really makes the uh, recording of such a podcast seem kind of silly and pointless 
I mean, I know this is the least of the problems this this whole situation creates, but why would I bother talking about this uh, this new book we've got in front of us here when so much more important things are going on in the world? Again, how can I advise? How can I even begin to um, imagine what everybody is going through over there? Not obviously because I'm not there, but because even I consider myself fairly versed and educated in terms of civil rights movements and black culture and everything like that but i am also smart enough to know anything i know or anything i can empathize with is a mere drop in the ocean to what actually uh, it feels like or the experience is like so all i can really say is firstly you need to be supporting the black lives matter movement in any way that you can whether you are there and you can go and physically help in person whether you can educate yourself and that's not to suggest this is the thing that people get to when someone tells you to educate yourself people take that as an insult and saying uh, you're dumb or you don't know anything and it's not that at all it's that we can all stand to all learn a bit more and uh, empathize a bit more and support a bit more because that's that's how these things you know fingers crossed will eventually resolve themselves generations into the future is that people will be more educate and understand more so just make sure you are doing that for yourselves for your families for your friends don't let these things these opportunities pass you by because uh because it matters other than that i i, I don't know what to say other than the Isle of faces is with all of you in spirit all of you who are who are out protesting who are out trying to stop the evils of oppression and and abuse of power and everything else that's going on there we could go we could list all the problems going on and on and on we support you. I support you personally. I stand with you. And will you tell me if any of you out there have suggestions of how the podcast can help with this this situation or can talk about it in a more meaningful or probably smoother way than I'm doing right now? Speak up and send me a message because we can't be silent here on, on this kind of thing and we can't ignore it. And it shouldn't be ignored. It should be explored and, and promoted in in both facets you need to look at all the bad things that are going on that the bad people are doing and you need to promote all the good things that are going on all the protests and all the people standing up for people who need to be stood up for basically um in terms of what we can actually do i've delayed this podcast uh this episode a day already it might go longer i'm not sure when you're going to be listening to this because there is kind of like the uh, the blackout movement the podcast blackout stuff Again, I've talked to this about on the Patreon already, so <laughs> yeah, you can tell. I don't really know what I'm talking about here, obviously, but again, all I can really double down on is that we support you, we love you. Here on the other faces, we are um, sorry uh, that we can't do more. Hopefully, I don't know if this is going to change anyone's mind or influence anyone in any way or shape or form, but th- this is what I have to offer right now. And I will continue to try and educate myself to try and spread to try and spread the word uh, about anything I can. And hopefully, we just get through this and come out better. It's not even about getting through, is it? We're not trying to weather a storm here. We're trying to affect actual change because that's what's needed, not just in America but everywhere. And and hopefully, what people are doing, what people are risking out there in in the US, will affect that. Hopefully. <sighs> Okay, yeah, I, I guess I will leave it there. Um, just know that even though I say I'll leave it there, that this isn't 
leaving. I'm going to start talking about this silly fantasy book now, but that doesn't mean the problem has gone away. It doesn't mean I stopped thinking about it. It doesn't make me any less sad or any less frustrated or want to be doing any less. We might talk about dragons and feasts for crows in a minute, but this issue doesn't go away. And when I stop recording, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. And I hope when you stop listening, you, I would recommend stop listening now. Stop listening now. You can listen to this later. This is a podcast about a fantasy book that's 15 years old. It can wait. Okay, you'll be fine. Put it on pause. Go and look at what you can do to help the cause wherever you are in the world, whatever background and creed you might be. Just stop now and go and have a look at what you can do. And at the very least that anyone can do is just take a few minutes to educate yourself. Just have a look. It might be about the situation now. It might be about the situation historically. It might be US-based. It might not be. That's not really the point here. Just do what you can. Okay, so stop now. Come back in a minute. We'll start afresh. Okay, I hope you've done that. Right, let's try and uh, get through what, we were, what we're doing here. So, welcome back from the little vacation we've had between Storm and Feast. It's been a nice little break for me. I've enjoyed it personally. And again, I apologise to patrons who, before we go any further, let's thank the patrons first of all, because they are wonderful and they, they do keep me going, not just in the obvious sense, but really emotional support. Some of you I've spoken to personally in the last few weeks and you've really re-energised me because it was needed a bit. I'll be quite frank to all of you out there. The the pace and the, the sheer amount of stuff we had to talk about in Storm of Swords at the end was, it was too much. It was so much stuff to talk about, because obviously not only is it five chapters a week for Storm of Swords, but those chapters in the second half are so huge monumentally in the in the series, and there's so much to talk about, and I was really kind of getting up against it fitting those notes in with obviously my actual work and personal life and stuff that such as it is and stuff like that and with editing and really really long episodes it was too much and I I was getting a bit burnt out but you guys out there not just patrons but patrons especially you you re-energize me and you save me a bit as has this break this was needed for me so before we go any further let me thank all patrons first of all but I would especially like to thank Archmaster June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Lady Raj, Mistress of Horse, the wonderful Kate M, and new this week. You may recognise his name from History of Westeros patrons also. Lord Commander Namian Darklin. What a name. Hopefully I pronounced it right. I'm going to have to go to the stream and check. But we welcome you and we welcome others who have joined in the break as well. Thank you so much. We appreciate it to the depths of our heart. And like I say, you guys keep me going. Now, as to the break, like I say, it was needed. What I probably should have used that break for is to get ahead on Feast for Crows and, and get a lot of the note-taking done. So it's not so stressful each week. I'm not up against the wall in, a, in terms of time limit and getting everything to Aziz and the share. Unfortunately, I didn't do that. What I chose to do instead was spend a lot of time finally focusing on, on my beloved little novel that I'm writing. And I'll be honest with you, that energised me more than anything in the world. I was so appreciative of having the time to really focus on that for a bit. I got a lot done. I'm moving into a new stage with that. It excites me very, very much and it keeps me keeps me going just as much as the sunshine. So I thank you and thank Aziz and thank George for making this little gap here uh, so that I could get some of that done. What it does mean is I've kind of changed my approach to Feast for a bit because not only do I have the book to consider and that to work on, but I also have taken on some more freelance work so I have a little less time than before. So I'm kind of changing how I note take and how I prep the document and how I record and everything like that. 
So, well, you let me know. If you think it's changed the, the quality of the podcast, again, such as it is, uh, and you're not a fan, then you tell me, and maybe I'll have to change and tweak again. But let's see how it goes here. And I think that's a good timing to do that because this is not what we had before. Feast for Crows, let's start talking about it finally. Well, but no, before we get into the book, I should say, again, what's been happening in the gap. History of Westeros, they've kept you going. They've been putting out videos left, right and centre. There's no holiday for Aziz and share. They just keep... I take time off to do other things. They don't. They keep pumping out the videos. So I'm sure you've been watching those and, and listening and everything like that. So you're probably covered on that. In terms of the other faces... I have still been chipping away. That's the only other thing I've been doing apart from the book. It's chipping away at the Storm's End patrons only episode. I'm glad to tell you that it's coming along nicely. Weird as it is to be reading out my own work. Very uncomfortable it makes me, but hopefully you will enjoy it. That is coming soon. Do not worry. The five-year gap? Eh, not so much. I might shelve that for now. I think that actually might be better in kind of an essay form, but that will come eventually when I find the time. Just not right now. So either faces, patron only episode, Storm's End chapter, that is coming. So don't worry, patrons. That will be with you soon. I hope you're looking forward to it. And there will still be Spork or Spectacular to come. Don't you worry about that. But like I say, let's, let's get down to what we're actually talking about. A Feast for Crows. I have the copy here in front of me. Let's do a little the sound effect for you. Ah, yes. Lovely. The smell of a book. Is there anything that beats it? I haven't found it, if there is. And I quite like my copy of A Feast of Crows because it's battered, it's from a charity shop, and, you know, it's got (laughs) rips and stuff on it. And it's what will annoy a lot of you is that I don't have one single style for my Game of Friends book. I've also rearranged my desk here so I can actually look at the series in front of me. And I have, um, yeah, like different edition styles for almost every book so i know that would drive a lot of you crazy it drives my wife insane but i quite like it and feast of crows is a bit unique in the series for me just because it's so battered and terrible but we love it but what about i'm not here to talk my my physical copy of the book i'm here to talk about this book as an anomaly it's so very different so this is why i thought well let's change it up a bit because we're going to have to approach this book differently because it is so different. I spoke a lot about this on the Storm of Swords review with Aziz and Lady Gwyn and Nina Freyle as well about how this is just, it's a line in the sand. What came before in terms of Game of Thrones, The Clash of King, The Storm of Swords, they are very different. That was one subset of A Song of Ice and Fire and now we're entering a new one where I think most people will kind of lump feast and dance together obviously for timeline purposes for one reason but also just because they are so very different from what came before and Feast for Crows is even more than that I think it really is the outlier in terms of in terms of everything really in terms of content in terms of style in terms of the focus it really is like nothing else in A Song of Ice and Fire and a lot of people do not like that a lot of people will say this is their least favourite book for this reason or that reason. And, uh, well, I I can't agree with them. I love Feast of Crows. What I will say is I think it's it might be the worst one for first reads, if you get what I mean. The first time you go for the series, I wouldn't be surprised if the majority of people say, I like Feast the least. Now, why do they say that? I, again, I think it's just because it is so, such an outlier, because it sticks out so differently. But the flip side of that is, I do think, is the best one for reread purposes out of all of them. Now, we can say that, 
about every book almost there's so much we've uncovered doing these rereads the the amount of clues you can find of game of thrones the stuff you missed in clash of kings the obvious awesomeness of a storm of swords but i think this one is the one that improves the most i should say that improves the most every time you read it i i don't know how many times i've read it maybe five now and i love it more and more each time especially in specific areas brienne is a huge part of this book and a lot of people bring up her chapters as ones they don't like kind of travel long chapters and and you know, various reasons like that some will even say they're boring uh, i'm not sure how you can read this book and come up with brienne's chapters are boring the beginning of brienne's arc okay all right i can get on board with what you mean yes it does start slow but it's a slow burn for brienne she improves into each chapter improves i personally find as you go along but every time you start a new that bar is just a little bit higher. Each time you read each of these chapters, they get a little bit better. And they, they are insane, the Brienne chapters. I mean, they are amazing. Now, I'm waffling. I think this book should be more appreciated than it is, is what I'm trying to say to you. This is an amazing book. That Yes, it is an outlier, it is an anomaly, and I'm going to go through more the ways that that's true. But it is. it should be appreciated for what it is, which is an amazing book. I look forward to going through it with you here over the next uh, 12 weeks or so. As you will know, if you've listened to the History of Westeros stream from Sunday, we'll be going through normally at four chapters a week, this week three because we've got the large POV to deal with, I think for like 12 weeks. So because this is the shortest one as well, that's another way that it's different, but um, lots to uncover, lots and lots. Let's start talking about what is actually in this book now if i had the time what i'd really like to do is have a whole feast for crows like preview show where we just go through some of the themes and the character arcs that we're going to find well i tell you what let's do that kind of quickly now we'll do a, a mini version because we've only got three chapters i've got the time i'm sure you're not going anywhere let's just talk about very quickly who we have in this book and and what, and what we're going to find now what i'm going to talk about a lot today so i'll save the majority of this for our first two chapters is that this book is opening the world okay this is the big sign from george that hey okay i know you've enjoyed what you've got so far but this is new territory we're really stepping outside the box here we're opening up the iron islands okay that we have visited before but now we're really opening them up we're doing the same with dawn which we haven't been to before i'm going to tell you this straight away in the prologue by visiting this place with people we've never been before i'll talk about that more in a minute and we're really just exploring areas that again we have not before this is very different yes we've got some sprinkled in there that you'll know just to keep you on on the on track but really this is all new territory so just prepare yourselves that's what he's saying in terms of the theme what is the theme of a Vista for crows and is there any singular theme for any a song of ice and fire book of course not but what's the dominating prevailing thing here well there's two that really jump out to me and firstly it's a focus on the small folk we're really moving away from the nobility not so not that we don't have the nobility in this book but we're really switching the focus onto more of what we got already from Aya and and some other POVs as well in the previous three books where we're looking not only at the small folk themselves but the effects of this war that's the other big standout from this book that I think you can probably tell from the title this is the aftermath this is what it's all cost this dominating war this dominating conflict that we've had throughout the first three books of Lannister versus Stark we're actually going to move away from that, even though we have Lannister POV still. We're going to move away from that conflict and look at all the ways this has just spread out through the land and got worse for everybody and how violence kind of begets more violence. The war, instead of everyone saying, oh, look how terrible this war is, let's all stop fighting. 
it's the opposite. It just begets more violence because people come scrabbling. The fe the crows come a-feasting, you could say. But as much as that is looking backwards at the, the cause and the war and the fighting that has led on to all this, this is also a book that looks forward. Probably the most forward-looking book we've got so far in terms of new plots coming up, new arcs, new areas for us to explore. And I'm going to say this again and again as we go, but this is new territory in terms of stuff being pointed out or arisen for the reader that has no conclusion yet okay we've most of the stuff in game of thrones and clash of kings and storm of swords kind of bundles together not the big stuff obviously but there's a lot of closed arcs there because that was one mini part of the series that was one act so to say and that is finished now so a lot of that is tied off not so for feast of crows and dance of dragons and what's to come after obviously because we don't have what's to come after so there's going to be a lot of setting up here so this time where we could have normally said, okay, we're setting this up in Clash of Kings because we know in Dance of Dragons this happened. So that's the connection. We're not going to be able to do that as much anymore. We're going to have to say, okay, this gets set up in Aya's chapter and we don't know what's going to connect that in Winds of Winter or Dream of Spring. We can think this, but we really don't know. So this is new territory for us and for George and for the series. Okay. All right. But let's talk about the POVs. And there's two different aspects to talk about the POVs here because not only do we have different POVs, different characters, but also the structure of the POV um, storytelling device is very, very different. We are being introduced to the first time of single chapter POVs or sometimes two chapters POVs. That's not happened before. Davos only has three chapters in Clash of Kings, but apart from that, everyone really has like a minimum of five and obviously we've got loads more. There's 15s and 10s flying around everywhere. I really should kind of work out the average for you and then say that, but We'll save that for later. And we don't actually have as many people having so many POVs in this book. In general, everyone has a lot less. The average is way down in this book. Now, some of that is because it's a shorter book, but some of it is also the huge influx of POVs. This, again, is such sweeping change. Eight new POVs in this book alone. That's as many as Game of Thrones. And that's as many as our first introductory book to the series. So, again... This is the real line in the sand. I'm going to keep repeating that phrase. This is a new area. This is what George is saying. In terms of linking it to the Storm of Swords, we lose six former POVs for this book specifically. We lose Callan, obviously, she's not coming back. We lose Tyrion for now. We lose Davos for now. We lose Jon for now. Daenerys for now. And Bran for now. Five of them are coming back, obviously. Not so much for Catelyn, sadly. We do have some returners in Jaime, Aya, Sansa, and Sam. Again, much, much less chapters for them on average. Not true for everybody. Jamie still has seven in this book, so that's not too much of a difference for him. Sam still has five. That's about normal. But what about Sansa and Aya? Hmm. That's a bit different, isn't it? Sansa has three, I believe. Aya has three as well. Yes, that's right. And, well, we're used to a lot more for them, obviously. Aya, okay, she started off with five in a Game of Thrones. They shared a bunch in Clash of Kings. The most in Storm of Swords was a huge drop-off for her. Sansa, obviously, a lot as well. So this is a big, big change. And the other change is these new eight POVs coming in that I mentioned. Those being Aaron Greyjoy, Arya Hotar, Cersei, <laughs> Brienne, oh yes, Asher, another favourite, Ares Oakheart, Victorian Greyjoy, and Ariane Martell. So very very different <laughs> and like i say they're all nobility essentially and yet we get this different complete focus on the small folk but I, I won't go back into that for now let's talk about very quickly the these povs that we have and the arcs we're going to get 
I first want to point out there's a lot of A's in this book. Aeron, Aereo, Ariane and Ares. Oh, and Asher as well. Yeah, lots of A's. Not sure what the significance of that is. Let's talk about, well, I can kind of skip over Aeron because we're going to talk about him in a minute. He's one of our, he's the opening chapter. So we're going to talk about him in a second. For now, I will say, not a fan. I do not like Aaron Greyjoy. I do not like his chapters, or at least his first one. Just not a good person. I don't want to read about him. I'm not a religious person. I don't like his viewpoint either way, even if it is maddening. I don't, yeah. I'll tell you what, let's save him. I'll go, I'll get my rant going on him in a minute. Aereo, I like him a little more. You might pronounce it different. Ario, Aereo. I say Aereo. like him a bit more. We'll save him as well, because we're going to talk about him in a minute. Now, Cersei. Cersei. Where do we start talking about this? What do you do about a problem like Cersei Lannister? Well, quite. Is she the defining feature of this book? I would say yes. I would say, tell you what, let's pick out one POV. Who's the big POV for me for each book? I think most people will say Ned for Game of Thrones. Clash of Kings is a bit harder. Most people land on Tyrion. Storm of Swords is very hard. There's a lot of people there. You probably land on Jon, possibly Arya, maybe Tyrion again. That's much more difficult. I think most people are landing on Cersei. If I said that to you, if I put that question to you for Feast for Crows, one, because she's the one we would have wanted the POV for the most. We've talked about this coming through the first few, three books, especially for A Clash of Kings. Oh, I wouldn't give for a Cersei POV in A Clash of Kings. And now we have it. We're inside this mind of this woman that we've, we've hated and been fascinated with for the first three books. And it's everything you could want it to be because she is mental. She's crazy. She's messing up left, right, and center. We find out so much about her here that you know, you know, we take for granted now because we already know. Obviously, we find out about the Valenquire prophecy. We find all this stuff about uh, all the stuff about her marriage and, and motherhood. And <laughs> I mean, the, the stuff that goes on in King's Land in this book is fascinating. So I feel like. She is the the focus of this. You can say Brienne as well. You can say Jamie, um, but she really takes the crown here. I think, pun intended. And we've got to be looking forward to her chapters, don't we? We're not going to get to the first one until next week. I think it's the first chapter next week, and really, it just kicks off from there and never lets go in terms of almost being laughably terrible and us getting to really enjoy that side of things. The paranoia she has, these mistakes that she. Uh, does throughout the book in terms of arming the the faith and just people kind of laughing at her behind her back there's a great Pycelle line we're going to get to where he's like come on really are you serious and this is Pycelle of all people being like oh god this chick is crazy Uh, we're going to get to that we love that arc is really going to be important going forward because obviously it changes so much King's Landing in this book from what we've seen before and it's kind of just left wide open for what's to come and again we don't know what to come we have got hints but uh yeah Cersei Lannister ruling King's Landing boy howdy that's that's going to be a good one to keep it rolling here Brienne I've already mentioned a little bit she is probably I would say most most people the second defining feature of this book because I should say Cersei I think has the most chapters so that's another reason why she's so dominating Brienne has a bunch as well I don't know if there's any more singular book arc this is beautiful as Brienne's. You get so much stuff, especially in the latter half. And what I like about the structure of Brienne's arc is it it's really tough, I think, for George to do this kind of episodic writing, which we get a lot more of in this book. All the chapters are a lot more uh, episodic, episodic, episodic. 
and we because we really go here there and everywhere so keeping details and themes and feelings together can be can be difficult and it might even contribute to why some people don't like this so much on first read because it's it's just harder to keep it all in mind and you really have to go back through and and start connecting the dots that's true even for people like me who've read it a bunch of times on my latest read i did just before we're doing this project i remember feeling like there is a monumental gap between the two ariane chapters just to skip ahead for a moment and actually there are only 19 chapters slash 300 pages on the paperback apart so it's not that big we've had much larger gaps than that but it feels a lot longer because there's so much chop and change and we're going to so many ge- different geographic areas so you you've really got to keep all these different storylines in mind and one can easily be forgotten which again is why this is one of the best for rereading that's that's just part of it and like i've already said the brienne arc i think is the best arc of all for rereading i think you'll just appreciate it more and more we're going to get to some amazing chapters later on and yes i'll put my hands up not the biggest fan of the first few again the first one coming up next week that's not my favorite you know it's certainly for the penniless and the, the other guy i can't remember his name right now and yeah you know it's fine but it gets so much better we've got brienne's fight in uh, like beneath the whispers we've got the elder brother and the, the sacred isle no what was it called the quiet isle that kind of stuff We've got the stuff of the orphanage. My God, I can't even talk about that right now with Gendry coming back. And we've got a final chapter with the Brotherhood and Forest and Lady Stoneheart. And again, good, good God. The, the no chance, no choice stuff that we're going to get to, that's at the orphanage. That is one of the best chapters of A Song of Rise and Fire. There's no argument in that. We just can't. And the themes, I think, of this book really resonate strongest in Brienne. Yes, Cersei might dominate because she has just this wild ride that's fun to go along, but Brienne's the one out there feeling this aftermath of the war, seeing this aftermath of the war. And I'll, I'll point out, not just the War of the Five Kings, we're talking about much more aftermath than just that in Brienne's arc. And seeing what it's done to people and how people rebound and, and get themselves together, or sometimes don't, as the great broken man speech, that's another part of Brienne's arc here and yeah just so many highlights i can't wait to get to brienne just being in her head and seeing how she wonderfully sees the world as this person who wants to to do good and how often do we get that someone who's just out to do good for other people Uh, that sounds like something you would find quite often in a book but we don't in this series really even we might be sympathetic to you know the stark children and I'm, i'm not saying they should be better but brienne really all she wants to do is help people that's it and and do right it's a wonderful arc i'll keep it going i could talk about brienne all day sam is one of our returners we get five five chapters of sam and again i think that is one you could kind of be like i'm not a big fan of at the beginning because it's almost all traveling i don't personally have as much of a problem with travel log chapters as, as some do i can see why and like i say some of those brienne ones do stick out to me as a bit slow and okay let's just let's just get there george but i i don't i especially don't feel that with sam again great moments coming up the ending of aemon targaryen incredibly emotional chapter really one of the highlights of the book that's going to be a tough one to go through we get to see bravos through a different lens we get this crossover with Aya, and I'll talk about this in a moment, but there's really not a lot of crossover at all in the in this book for in terms of POVs. So that's a, a nice moment there. And the ending, I'll talk about in a minute, because it links so strongly back to the beginning, and it's a hell of an ending, and really one of the most open-ended 
parts of um, what we've got kind of in terms of publication timeline here what we're waiting for there's so much that can happen to Sam and to Gilly and the baby also as well and yeah I, I really like that ending actually he meets Zondo and he's he's a cool character everyone on board the that ship there at the end that's that's going to be cool to talk about as well we've got the two Stark sisters only six chapters of Stark sisters only six chapters of Starks I mean they've been the prevailing family the main character as a whole as a unit this is the people we started the series with. This is the reason we're reading because we've seen this family split apart and we want to see what happens to them. And we've only got six chapters of them now. Yeah, that's that's the how different this book is. That's how really off the beaten path we are that we've abandoned this really core theme of the books and of the series for now at least. And not only that, but they're not even called Starks for half the book. They start getting code names, which is another difference that we're going to have to get used to is this use of, of uh, chapter titles on code names that we've never had before. So we got three Ayers. Um, she becomes Cat of the Canals. Now, I said, I said on Twitter a little while ago that Ayers third chapter, Cat of the Canals, is one of my least favourite of the book. It does go really slowly for me. I got a lot of backlash for that, which is, you know, to my point, everyone enjoys different parts of the book. This chapter in question is the going around selling the cockles and stuff. And then that part just went a bit long for me. Not that I don't love the ending of the chapter and, and everything else that happens in it. I'm just saying that part doesn't rub so well. But overall, Iron Bravos, that's very interesting. The writing, not my favourite. It does go a bit slow in the House of Black and White, but I just love Aya. It's too much to uh, to let that bother me. So a short arc for Aya. And again, open-ended, but enjoyable. Same for Sansa. Short, only three chapters. Bigger chapters, though. I think we have the longest chapter in A Song of Ice and Fire coming, if I'm not much mistaken. And, well, I'm quite familiar with these ones because they're so eerie-based. Uh, so I had to read through them quite a few times for the Great Castles of Westeros book. So uh, familiar with those. <sighs> a lot of Peter Baelish stuff, so you can look forward to my ranting there. Oh, yes, you can. Again, open-ended, maybe a little bit more concentrated than I am. Looking forward to all that stuff. Um, and finally, before we get to some of the newbies, Jamie, huge part of this book. I love the Jamie arc in this book. All the stuff with, uh, with River Run and the how he's trying to deal with this stuff while not being Tywin, but kind of being Tywin. And uh, he's reeling from this interaction he had with Tyrion before let them go and what that resulted in, in Tywin's death. He's relationship with Cersei's finally broken free and uh, I love the Jamie he might be my favorite of this book I love the Jamie arc so I'm looking forward to getting to that then on top of that we have Asher, Ares, Victarion and Ariane and well I'll group these lot together because I am aware we're actually running quite long already I've not even started the actual <laughs> notes yet we can kind of group these POVs together because this is the other big part of this book that is a real defining feature this is probably even overtake Cersei as the defining feature of Feast of Crows is the introduction and the opening of the Ironborn and the Dornish plots now that is a controversial part of the series a lot of people say this is where they don't enjoy it so much where it deviates too much from the main story and they say no George you shouldn't have done this you shouldn't have included these things you spread your net too wise you've made it all too complicated that's why you've had to wait for wins for so long and etc 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 and you know a lot of people just don't enjoy them in general it, like even in a vacuum now i can't say that personally i do enjoy these parts of the book especially the dornish i prefer the dornish over the ironborn because i like the sun and i, I just find that a bit more interesting but in terms of just placing in the series again it's just a monumental 
moment they were opening these things up now what i like about the two parts of this is they're so similar they really are a mirror to each other even in their background now we've been a lot more involved with the ironborn so far because obviously we've already had Theon as a pov we have already actually been to the iron islands and we've already met Balon and asher technically actually victorion we tend to forget he's been on page and aaron as well and they've already had a massive impact on the plot in terms of winterfell so they're much more established we have had a dash of the dornish with oberon but not nearly so much we've not they haven't affected things as much okay we've sent the cellar off to dawn but really and aries as well but really they haven't affected so much just yet now in this book we really get a mirror you know i like looking at this kind of thing and the chapter sequencing and stuff like that and they really do have almost the same setup in terms of the ironborn povs they have someone with two chapters another person with two chapters and then one person with one they have aaron victorion and then asher for the dornish it's almost exactly the same in that we get two one one we have two Ariane chapters, one Ario chapter, and one Ares chapter. And okay, he's not Dornish, but he's there. He's in the same plot line. So that's very, very similar. And actually, if you look through the list of chapters, which I like to do also, you'll see that they are placed very, very similarly as well. For instance, today we have Aaron's chapter next to Ario's chapter. They're right next to each other. Later on, we're going to get Asher just one chapter away from Ares's chapter and it goes on like that Ariane's the queen maker chapter is just one removed from Aeron and um, Victarion having the king's moot so they're, they're really squeezed together they do separate a bit later on in the book but at least early on they really are being mirrored against each other and like I say we kick off with a double with a Greyjoy Martell double to really show for George to really say hey look this is this is my statement early on there's a reason he puts those chapters first before we get to the Cersei and the Brienne of next week which is a pretty ballsy move to be fair to George we have these storylines that people are desperate to get to especially in King's Landing because uh, to be fair I didn't read this in time with release so I don't know someone out there tell me if you were told about the POVs prior to publication i'm assuming that you were i'm sure george mentioned beforehand which POVs were coming up and that i wonder if people knew that john danny and Tyrion weren't in this book again I, i'm going to assume you were but even for the casual reader because you know we're talking 15 years ago for a lot of people they would have picked this up and been like hang on what's this note at the beginning where is john where is, well there's john for a little bit but where's daenerys where's Tyrion? and who are these new people i need to know what where did Tyrion go remember that is left on a cliffhanger at the end of storm of swords he just he shoots tyron and walks away we don't know where he's gone we don't know any of that where did Aya end up okay we've got hints but we want to see that etc etc we need to see these people that we already know and okay at least with john and daenerys you know where they are you know john's at the wall and he's ruling you know danny's a marine and she's ruling and for some of them you have more conclusion you know sans is probably still at the eerie but we still want to see these people but george says no 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 i'm gonna make you wait here's my new things i'm starting off as i mean to go on get used to it okay so big move by george there and final note just before we actually get on to what we're supposed to be doing here yeah we're 50 minutes in and i've not actually got to my notes so my strategy of new note taking not going so well in terms of uh, lessening my work so far but like i said a minute ago the crossover between chapters is much less pronounced for a lot of the book anyway not all of it for the first half we do have cersei and jamie in the same place but then they split and then really that's about it like i said there's very brief but enjoyable time with iron sam and we do have these little groups 
of the Martell storyline and the Greyjoy storyline. But other than that, really not that much at all. Yes, sure, Sam hears about the Ironborn and so does Loras in King's Landing. But that's about it for the main plots. In terms of POVs, in the same place and same plot, it really is just those Greyjoy and Martell ones. So it's a real different thing to get used to. And George gets us used to that with his opening chapter, his prologue, which I will finally get to now 50 minutes in and actually i tell you what i am just going to include this here because I, I have the hard copy next to me i just happen to be glancing down and you know it has the little testimonials well on this version from entertainment weekly i'm just going to read you this because it's just caught me out the corner of my eye the testimonial is when the writing is this good it's worth the wait Interesting testimonial. <laughs> All right, I don't know if that's a. I guess at this point that wasn't a sly little dig, but if you said that now, people probably would uh, get annoyed with you. Let's get on with the show, shall we? Yes. Okay. Nearly an hour gone. Let's talk about. So I want to mention first off is I'm going to put my hands up and say I had a real struggle taking notes for these three chapters. At least the first two, Ario, I got on a bit better with, but Pete and Aaron. I had a tough time. Now, I don't know if that's just because I was out of practice. I've been actually writing for a while instead of reading writing. I don't know if that's just a different style. I don't know what it is. But I had trouble, especially for Aaron. I think for Aaron is because I just don't like him. I just don't want to be in that chapter. For Pete, hmm, I'm not sure why. I think it's just because we don't have the surroundings for Pete. He's not, he's not anchored in anything. That's the prevailing part of this this prologue is that it's an outlier and like i say george is trying to set a trend here he's trying to tell you that we're in new places and new people and we're going to talk about that more in a minute but i'll tell you what i'll start with this so having very recently read the ending of this book um and unfortunately we don't get an epilogue this time no we've got to wait for dance for that in sam 5 i noticed that this is the first time that we really get a strong link between beginning and ending chapters in fact, almost exclusively so, which is interesting because this prologue really has no effect on the rest of the book. I think this is another reason why it's hard to take notes, even less than other prologues do. Let's just remind ourselves quickly of the other prologues. So in Game of Thrones, we have Will and the Rangers. Their deaths, the Rangers' deaths and being considered missing, that incites Benjamin Stark to go on a search and then go missing himself, which eventually leads to the Great Ranging. And, and also, that prologue is followed up immediately in the first chapter, we have Bran witnessing Eddard take uh, Garrod's head. So that's connected to the rest of Game of Thrones. In A Clash of Kings, Stannis and all his group, they're obviously very involved in the rest of the book. But that's the window that we get through Crescent, so that's a clear one. The Storm of Swords with Chet, we get the foreshadowing of the Night's Watch mutiny and the coming of the others to the Fist of the First Men. So that all kicks off Sam's arc, so that's involved. And looking forward to A Dance of Dragons, even if Varamir specifically isn't relevant we have John being involved with the wilding remnants at the wall throughout and a more thematical connection with what Bran is up to in terms of warging humans and all that dark stuff. So all of those much more involved with their respective books than Pate is with this book. But we do have this connection between beginning and end. Not only that, we get the most dead-on connection of all prologues with Sam supposedly re-meeting Pate, whom we know to be dead at the end of this chapter if we're going to get to that and it kicks off this whole mystery that we have pretty much zero information on and well that's something we're going to come to obviously and like i say that is just something we have to get used to for feast of crows and for dance of dragons as well 
mysteries we do not have answers to. Now, we're quite lucky in that we uh, exist in this fandom with a, ma a million brilliant writers and amazing minds who think up these theories and connect the dots and put all the clues, so we do actually have some really good guesses for what's going on. But they're guesses. That's all we have now, for the most part, at least. Let's go back for a minute to the idea of beginning and ending not normally having any connection at all, whereas Feast has this really obvious one. The only real comparison in terms of endings and beginnings being linked is Game of Thrones. Again, let's check out the others quickly. So the beginning of Clash of Kings is the introduction to Dragonstone, and the end, the last chapter, is Winterfell being burnt and Bran leaving. Okay, now there is lots of connection between Winterfell and Dragonstone, which you've heard me talk about in various places before, but plot-wise, not so much. Or even if you want to leave out the prologue and just have the first chapter, first chapter in Clash of Kings is I-1. There's not really any connection to Bran there, other than, obviously, the family link. Now, a Storm of Swords, we have the beginning is the coming of the others. The end, the epilogue, is Lady Stoneheart revelation. So, okay, we like connection of being undead there, but the link is really not there. And again, even if we miss out the prologue, the first chapter is Jamie 1. So, okay, some connection between Jamie and Lady Stoneheart, but we're stretching there. In the Dance of Dragons, we have the prologue versus the epilogue again. It's Varamir versus Kevin. And other than snow coming down, no connection. But in Game of Thrones, I should point out, we have the establishment of the others in Will's POV or Ice. And in the epilogue, the birth of dragons or fire in Daenerys' tent. So that is a perfect mirror as we get our whole song as bookends, ice and fire. But even that is thematical, and obviously the two plots don't actually touch each other. So even that one is not in the same realm as what we will get today with beginning and ending. I mean, let's establish this actual beginning first, shall we? Let's get started on the prologue and its content. There are a few elements that we could pick as standouts and what's memorable, but for me, from this prologue, is the setting. We arrive at Old Town for one of just two visits, and the other is coming in that ending, that final chapter with Sam. And so this is a big deal. We've not been here before, and it's an important place. We already knew at this point in publication or reading order how important Old Town is to the rest of Westeros. But that's only been further enhanced, further exposed by reading Fire and Blood. Now we really get how big a deal this place is to the history of the Seven Kingdoms and in terms of politics and history and everything else. And now we're actually there. We're seeing what it's like. It's a huge undertaking in terms of world building. Consider that aside from Game of Thrones, which you know, obviously is the first part of the series, so you can't really escape it, the other prologues already have something established to carry them. In, for Crescent, we already know a bit about Stannis and, and his deal through Ned's POV. We at least know who he is, even if we've never been to Dragonstone. For the Storm of Swords, we already know the Night's Watch, we know Sam and Dior, we have actually even met Chet, even if we don't know him that well. We already know about Varamir in the Dance of Dragons, and we know what's happened to the Wildlings, we know why he's running away, we've already seen that in John's POV. Not true in this prologue. This is the outlier, in which we only meet completely new characters in a completely new place. And again, it's very symbolic of what this book is going to be like. New people, new places. What perfectly ties into this as a setting is that we find out so much about the Citadel and the Maesters. Because again, that is integral. That's integral to the series we've got so far. That's integral to the world that has been built up. We've met more Maesters than we can count at this point. We already know how important they are to the running of the world, but they're always just there, basically, everywhere we go, whether in the background or with certain standouts like Lewin or Pycelle or Aemon. As much as we've had stories from those three and others about the Citadel, 
and the forming of their chains, actually seeing it in the flesh is completely different. Now we get to see real students, we get to meet real professors, and basically see the structure and reality of how these very, very important figures in Westeros, and again, even more so if you've read Fire and Blood, get made. And surprise, surprise, it turns out that this enlightened place of learning is subject to the same inner politics and human elements or emotions as anywhere else. So that's just really cool to see. It's a look under the hood in many ways. And I feel it's a hint of what's to come because this is quite an important book for maesters. We lose our favourite in Aemon. Pycelle comes back into prominence by the end. We have the depravity of the non-maester in Kyburn, And then there's Sam's hopes and our meeting with Marwyn at the end. In terms of setting up themes for the rest of the book, I'm again going to point to geography. Not only is this an entirely new place that we had no idea we were going to visit, whereas for the others we'd already seen the Fist of the First Men for Chet, and we had a good idea we'd travel to Crescent's Dragonstone, it's also the most southerly we've ever been, and by some margin. That's going to be beaten in a mere two chapters when we go further down to meet Arya Hotar in, at the Water Gardens and Sunspear, but it's a clear signal that we're going to be visiting places we've never been before in this book, that we're really opening up the map now, this is the doorway. And I think that sense of this, again, it being a gateway into a whole new section of the series links really well with Old Town's actual role as a gateway to the rest of the world, especially seeing as they spend a lot of this chapter talking about events half a world away. Before we get to the text itself, we have a few more themes to check in with. This prologue is also a bit of an anomaly in that while it keeps up with the code of prologues being related to something magical, it does it in a much more subtle and unexpected way. The chapter in itself isn't inherently magic-based, if you forgive the constant talk of dragons. It's actually more reality-based than most of the places we visit. Old Town, so far, is one of the more relatable settings for us. Not many of us have been knights or ruled anything in a castle, but plenty of us have been students or lived in a university city or what have you. This is a chapter about teens or young adults and about a guy who wants a girl. Now, we'll discuss more about that part as we go, but for A Song of Ice and Fire, it's pretty basic, it's very human. I do think that's probably a large intention of George to show that his great big ancient house of learning that produces all these robed people that get sent out into the world to live in castles and advise or deal with birds etc etc is not magical. This is not that place. This is a place of learning and academics and real humanity. Now don't forget, George was coming off his infamous loss to the Goblet of Fire in the Hugo Prize so maybe it was in his head to make it clear from the beginning this is very anti-Hogwarts type place. But bringing it back to Westeros, this again compare settings, especially in terms of magical slash creepy atmospheres. For our four other books, the prologues are set in the Haunted Forest, Dragonstone, Far Above the Wall, and in the Haunted Forest again. Our setting for the majority of this one, a pub. So a bit of an outlier. This also fits in well with something you might remember me talking about all the way back in our first Clash of Kings episode, where we talked Maester Crescent's chapter. The prologues have a pattern. They take it in turns. For our odd-numbered books, so Game of Thrones, Storm of Swords, and A Dance for Dragons. All prologues are set above the wall. They are all much more magical slash otherworld based in their setting and content. Slightly less so on the content for Chet, but we know where he is, so it's not unexpected that something magical comes. For our two even-numbered books in Clash of Kings and A Feast for Crows, they are set in the far south. They are set within civilization instead of out in the wild. One is within a great castle, the other within the city that supposedly best represents civilization and progress in the Seven Kingdoms anyway. And they're both about maesters also. Their content is focused on an old man worrying about losing his essential son, and the other about a young buck and his infatuation and struggle to make his way in the world. They're both connected with what's going on in Westeros or even Essos, whereas the odd-numbered chapters are zoned in very much in their tiny areas of the world. But, though the magic stuff is more whisper on the wind, rather as, as obvious as it is up north, 
it still eventually comes through at the end and in quite similar ways. Though, if we're being fair, the unnatural side of things is littered throughout the chapter, but in a way it doesn't immediately jump out to you, again, like with Crescent, that comes at the end. There's the more obvious talk of dragons, yes, but there are also references to the glass candles. We got our first mention of the high towers, again, unfinished storylines much. We still know nothing about Lathan Hightower and his book of spells. We're going to need a new alarm for that kind of thing. And we also get the first Marwin mentioned since we heard it from Miri Mazdur. Congratulations to any first-time readers who remembered his name. We have to wait until the book's end to see how much of the magical stuff he's involved with, and that's really the deal with almost all the magical stuff in, the, in this chapter. It's there, it's on the edge, but it doesn't intersect until it really intersects with Pate's death at the end. If we look forward to The Winds of Winter, an even-numbered book, it seems most guesses point to that prologue being southern, politics-based with Edmure and Jane's trip to Castle Rock, only for an element of the otherworldly magic stuff to suddenly show up with the direwolves at the end. So that would fit the pattern, wouldn't it? Long live the pattern. Now you might notice, we haven't actually got to our POV yet. Pate, that poor soul who doesn't seem to fit in anywhere, whether in-world or narratively. Again, George is trying to set the theme of the book. Feast is so largely focused on the detail on the small folk and the leavings of war, that George decides to name his opening POV with the most common name of all. According to the wiki, there are no less than 17 separate pates that we come across during the series, or hear about at least, and they are almost all exclusively small folk or on the lower side of the social scale. So what better name for someone who opens a book that is about such people, but also for a character who is, if we're honest, Mr. Mundane. Pate really is an outlier in terms of his concerns or desires. He possesses no particular skill, or even really a connection to anyone important. That might not have always been true, but by the time we meet him, he's all but given up on becoming a maester, and really just wants his precious Rosie, and to not be bothered by anyone. He's at complete odds to every other prologue POV. Even in the group we meet, he's pretty unremarkable. Almost any of the others seem like they would make a much more interesting POV character, especially someone like Sorella. But then, that's very much the point, isn't it? We're supposed to be looking past the obvious, and uh, kind of looking under the rock, so to speak. So that makes for a very interesting writing challenge to set up all this brand new stuff about the Citadel and Old Town through such a character's eyes. And remember, this is a place the majority of us think will soon be destroyed or raided or something of that nature. So we have all this setup and this atmosphere of being somewhere essentially untouched by the wall so far, which is quite a departure from the places we've recently spent our time in King's Landing or Castle Black or the Riverlands. And we think it might soon perish under that terrible raid. But yet, we still got all the build-up, so there's this push-and-pull struggle almost to set it up, and yet we're still quite worried what's actually going to happen to it. It's pretty interesting. Okay, let's get to our first quote of this chapter, and it's actually the first line. Dragons, said Melander. So the book opens, oddly, with a word and a conversation about something that won't actually appear in this book at all, in either variety. We meet no flesh dragons in this book, and we meet no Targaryens either. So why are we chatting about them? Why, why the focus? Well, firstly, I think the point is that news of Daenerys and what's been happening out east has finally started hitting the mainstream of Westeros. We've already heard about it from Varys and kind of other whispers, but now it's, it's really getting to the people. That doesn't mean everyone is going to listen. It doesn't mean they have all the details right. But the idea of Danny and the idea of dragons specifically is going to be in the public consciousness. That's massively important for the end of Dance and the coming storylines and wins. So it's important to get that in now. And what I like most about this conversation is that the one who potentially has the most personal stake in the news, Alaris slash Sorella, is the one who seems to be the least interested. Someone has been to spy school, evidently. We'll speak more on her later. On top of that, I also think it's kind of a, a summary of the differing opinions on the news of dragons. We can see everyone here has a slightly different reaction or a slightly different thing to say, and that's very much symbolic of what's going to be happening up and down 
the Seven Kingdoms. Some people are going to leap right on it. Some people are going to say you're mental. Some people are going to say, well, we don't want dragons anyway, etc., etc. And again, this is what we're really going to explore, I think, come the winter of winter when certain Targaryens start appearing in uh, King's Landing. Maybe the flesh kind, maybe the certain kind. And also, there are a connection between dragons and Old Town, not just through fire and blood and what we've seen there, but even perhaps in Old Town's origins, that's another kind of mystery that Old Town might even predate the First Men entirely, which is kind of mind-boggling to think about. They have this connection to Deep Ones as well, and maybe there's dragons and uh, Valyrian outposts, and who knows, it's clearly a very important place indeed. And before we go into the people, again, we're at the Quillen Tankard. Great name, love that name. It does sound like a wonderful setting for a drink. This is a very nice place that we're getting to visit uh, in Westeros, which is a bit of a rarity for us. Unfortunately, Pate mentions how long it's been open, which is always a surefire mark that something isn't going to be around that much longer. If you ever say how long it's been around, that means it's not going to be around in the future. Especially seeing as he expects it to be open for another 600 years. It's pretty much a death sentence, so already we're getting links to the forthcoming doom of Euron. Now the first few paragraphs are all about introducing this group. We get Melander, then Laris, Lasharella, then Rune, before we finally get to Pate and discover he is going to be our POV with his inner dialogue. And we also get Armin a couple of paragraphs later. So what is that inner dialogue from Pate used for? It's for getting across his main desire and motivation, Rosie. That's the first thing we get from him. In fact, the first two thoughts show Pate's level of obsession, and I feel like that word is going to come up again before we're done with Pate. Here's those two quotes. First, I should like that very much, and I should like to sleep with Rosie's arms around me, Pate thought. And then second, Melanda whistled. You caught it, sweet. Not half as sweet as Rosie. So we see pretty clearly from the off, there's only one thing Pate wants, one thing he's actually interested in. And with being accurate, he actually wants her maidenhead. He's not all that interested in Rosie, is he? That's, that's a difficult discussion. You think he'd be interested in archery or outlandish stories about dragons or anything, really. It's not like he's got much else to be interested in. There's no Game Boys floating around in Old Town, as far as I know. But no, everything he relates back to Rosie and that ultimate goal. It's tempting to delve straight into the Rosie stuff here at the beginning because it is made so obvious to us from the jump. But there's plenty more to come, so let's just pump the brakes on now. We'll talk about the difficulty and uncomfortableness of uh, that aspect of this chapter in a bit. The firm establishment of a goal and a motivation is enough so far but we've also got our first hints of his jealousy or possessiveness when he mentions her touching Alaris on the arm but also the fact our Pate is a bit of a daydreamer. And it's because he's not got much else going on is he? He mentions uh, Ebros, 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 doesn't think him worthy of the silver so right away we know his studies aren't going well. He's lacking a direction and he outright says his dreams of being a maester are gone. Hence, he falls into the trap that many young people do, not just young people, but normally. He puts someone up on a romantic pedestal as the solution to all his problems. Nothing else will matter if he gets Rosie. Rosie will solve all his problems and he'll be happily ever after. The feeling of disappointment or failure will go, a direction will become clear, or direction will cease to matter because he'll have Rosie. She's a prize and a distraction and really not much else to him. Pate doesn't know Rosie the person, she isn't sharing these dreams of running away or declaring her love for him as far as we know, he's looking at her as an object really, not the most romantic, certainly not as romantic as he's making it out to be. She's just a living trophy, he believes will solve all his problems. And it's hard to come down on Pate for this alone because as I say many people, normally the young again, also fall into a similar trap, but it's the not seeing Rosie as a person that's the issue and we'll get more of that as we go. Although I will say that I've seen a lot of people cite it as being something that stands out more after the first read, which is 
Hmm, yeah, maybe interesting. I'm not sure. I can't even remember my first read of this chapter specifically in that regard. But yeah, I could see what they mean because you're kind of so focused on, okay, why are we here? What's the plot? What's what's happening? Why are we having this POV down here in Old Town? That you might miss how really uncomfortable that Pate obsession with Rosie actually is. But anyway, for now, we've got our little cast. We have what Pate is after. We have a conversation about dragons that we know are still miles away. So we need an engine to drive this chapter forward. We need to know why we're here. And we actually get it very early with this quote. The alchemist should have come by now. Ah, the alchemist, the most unknowable of unknowns. We're barely a page into the prologue of this book, and already I feel like a broken record, speaking about plot lines that we know nothing about and really have to start leaning on theory for. But the alchemist really is one of the very best representations of that. We know nothing about what he's up to. We really don't. We know he wants and gets a key, we know he can change his face and that he murders Pate with a coin the same way that Aya does in her training for the faceless men, but that's all later. So with all that we know there is someone who is very likely a faceless man in the Citadel with an important key and who's been helping Marwin and makes contact with Sam, that's if you want to take the whole book into consideration here. But that's it, we've really got nothing else, no preview chapters or hints from, from the Winds of Winter or anything like that, so the why of it completely escapes us. Oh, we also get that little hint from Tyrion about books buried in the Citadel, the Death of Dragons, I think that's it. So again, we've got things we can infer, we can look in certain directions, but nothing clearly laid out for us. But let's just consider, and I know I'm skipping ahead a bit here, but this is this is what the prologue is for, so let's focus on that. So he gains a key that can supposedly unlock any lock in the Citadel. And we don't actually know if that's true, that's just the theory, because it would be a pretty damn big security flaw if it is true. Remember there are multiple copies of these keys but by the by but the scope of possibility is amazing. We can't even imagine the type of information even with that little Tyrion hint that might now be available to the alchemist if we're going to keep calling that. And information might be putting it lightly. There could be physical items, there could be uncovered secrets, there could be anything hidden down there or up there or who knows where he's going. Not only is it one of the oldest buildings of Westeros, but it also has one of the greatest collections of knowledge in the known world, so the potential is insane. And again, unpaid. We just don't know. But the intensity of said potential is so strong that I think many people find themselves coming back to these theories and this chapter, despite the kind of bland protagonist, because it has to have a high payoff at some point, doesn't it? A magical man stealing a key to gain access to untold secrets. Like we said earlier, again and again, this prologue is the gateway into a whole new world, and the alchemist theories are a part of that. This is our introduction, maybe, to a world of organised magic or resistance against it or something. Dragons aren't the only things we should be watching for, is what I think I'm saying. Probably not very clearly. So as Pate kind of takes us through his thinking and gives us the backstory of how the meeting of the alchemist came to be, he also kind of relates how choosing of being a thief or a failure is tough. He thinks this is his only option. If he's going to have any sign of success, he needs to be a thief. And that relates a lot to Sam's deliberation in his final chapter in A Storm of Swords over whether a lie can be a good thing if done for a good cause. Sam ultimately decides that it is, and so does Pate. He, in his mind, he is doing a bad thing for a good purpose. And good purpose in his mind is, he'll get Rosie. In fairness, it's quite a different bet, because Sam is lying to make Jon Snow Lord Commander, and therefore save the wall, or save Gilly by lying to his father, where, again, Pate is really stealing so that he can claim Rosie's main maidenhead, that's all he's after. But to him, it's not just the maidenhead, it's any kind of future. And I should mention now as well, that there's mention of gold coins with dead kings on, which is kind of relevant because we're going to be seeing those not too far in the future in the Red Keep in Cersei's first chapter, 
And those coins are from the reach, and that's where we are right now, so the connections keep coming. Next quote. The tales are not the same, insisted Armin. Dragons in the Shy, dragons in Calf, dragons in Marine, Dothraki dragons, dragons freeing slaves. Each telling differs from the last. So we're continuing with these different stories on Daenerys and how they are going to be reacted to differently across the board in Restoros. Some with scepticism, some with belief, some with greed. We as readers know there's truth in almost all the rumours that Armin lists, except the Ashai one, and wonder what the origin is on that. Melander, drunk as he is, hits through to the core. Again, no pun intended there. Daenerys is what's important. She's the common denominator. She's the one to keep an eye on. So George allows the reader to be a bit smug at knowing things that the characters don't. We always enjoy that as readers. Pate only relates it to his own dragon and his own problem. For a chapter discussing world-altering events and news, Pate still keeps his scope limited to Rosie. Next quote. Alaris would make a maester. He'd only been at the Citadel for a year, yet he'd already forged three links of his maester's chain. So yeah, let's talk about Sorella for a little bit. Sorella, again, one of the more open-ended plot points, which we have very little evidence for. Get used to it. I'm going to get that tattooed on me, I think. I'm going to be saying it every episode, every chapter. But Sorella is a big part of that connection between beginning and end of the book that we've been talking about. She doesn't give herself away as anything other than an archer in this chapter, but at the end, we find out has actually been working as an agent of Marwyn's and is playing some kind of spy game on top of pretending to be a man. And I, I have to ask, did Marwyn know her whole story? Does he know that she's a standstake? God knows, but seems likely, I guess. We know she's playing a game later by Duran's quotes, but we really have to guess at what those particular games could be. And I, I suppose we'll have to save discussion of that for another time because that could take quite a while. But just realising that we have a member of the Sand Snakes following Oberyn by definitely being able academically whilst also getting away with her secret really makes you want to find out more. I certainly do. Uh, that's one of the more interesting potentials for me. And in this conversation about dragons, doesn't really interact for most of it, keeps her focused on the archery, but the end comes out with the three-headed dragon line. Because theoretically, she would know a lot about the lineage and relationships because she is part of that family, however distantly. Also, before we move on, really, really fucking good at archery. Really, really good. That should not be a achievable shot, but apparently it is. So we also find out Pate has been at the Citadel for five years. So I wonder if originally George envisioned him beginning his studies at the close of the Storm of Swords and then us meeting him for the first time after the gap. Not that I think he'd be referenced in Storm of Swords in any way, just in kind of George's cued mind that might be the connection hmm, don't know it's interesting though that he thinks on his failures at the same time as his friend's successes so i think we can gather that as he's ashamed and he knows he's hopeless and that's why he's pointing more and more towards this hail mary of rosie and the alchemist because his friends are actually kind of doing well he's not so he needs something anything so might as well risk it on this weird meeting with this weird guy um because it might get you rosie which to him is more important than everything the other guys are achieving. We also have another character introduced to us outside the gang, and that's Leo Tyrell. Now, the first thing I want to know about him is the relationship between Sorella and Leo. That's super interesting to me, because again, at the end, we'll find that they're both involved with Marwyn now. So by this point, have they both started working with Marwyn already, or is that to come in the gap between beginning and end? Have they maybe been instructed to act this way to each other, to hide that fact? don't know i'd really love to know more about how marwin has set up this little spy network of his but for sorella she can't resist bashing leo as more of an equal than the others would dare because to them being a member of house tyrell he's a tier above and they they know it they know the social structure but sorella seems to dance that line like she can't quite resist same way she can't quite resist the daenerys talk here's a quote from her 
You shame your house of every word you say, Alaris told him. You shame the Citadel by being one of us. Note that the house comes first. Even though Solaris is a bastard, not technically part of House Martell, you know, there's that old rivalry between Martell and Tyrell, so I think that's just sneaking in there a bit. As for Leo himself, well, I think we know he's a fool, but apparently does know his stuff, so wouldn't surprise me to learn he's been chatting with Marwyn for quite a bit by this point. He also kind of goes against the sweet image of the Tyrells we've had so far in the series. Now we know the truth of that, we've certainly had a bit of a look at Loras and his temper and the nasty bits of his personality, but in general, public view, Tyrells are still golden as far as the readers are supposed to think, but Leo, obviously not. So, And we're going to be delving further and further into this extended family in this book, so it makes sense to have one early on. Here's a quote from this uh, particular scene. There is a glass candle burning in the Major's chambers. A hush fell over the torchlit terrace. So yeah, George knows how to highlight importance to us. We can feel that hush. We know we should be paying attention to this. And also, Leo, not exactly tight-lipped with Myron's secrets, is he? But again, who knows how much of that is by design. So the candles, that well, they're an interesting part of this chapter, aren't they? They are surely going to be of huge importance going forward. And you can make any number of theories out of the candle stuff. They're definitely focused on later in Sam's final chapter. And I mean, yeah, the mind boggles, doesn't it? They could be a huge help in terms of accelerating the plot forward, especially when you think about potential improved communication and the South learning about the wall or speeding up Danny's invasion, because imagine how much an advantage that would give her, or maybe even getting Danny North and showing her the true uh, problem up there. Who knows? Characters could be meeting without having to physically meet that is a big big deal and you know people always say how is george going to get us to these points that seem so far forward via the plot well maybe the candles will do it don't forget there is supposedly a candle in the high tower and they have said well the high tower is so high they can see the wall or maybe that's how they can see the wall castles huh and they also mentioned that there's black and green candles which puts me in mind of the dance of dragons blacks and greens say and also different colors on dragonstone as well so i wonder if each color has a different ability in some way or who knows very interesting so we get this story about how the maesters have made a sincerely magical item part of their defense against the magical world by setting it into their initiation process as proof of such because the castles have been dormant and haven't been magical so that's pretty funny that's quite ironic I wonder if Lewin was one of these ones who tried their best and cut their fingers trying to actually get it to work before accepting the apparent truth. It must really worry the maesters that these things are working now because it undermines their whole philosophy, their whole structure. Mm, I want to see that come in as well. And the use of the candles here, it does draw some comparisons to Relore and Forrest and Melisandre in terms of looking into a fire type thing and seeing things. So, hmm. That's interesting. And we're actually going to have a fairly large departure from Relore Forest Melisandre in this book, so it's good to get that note in here early. A final note on the glass candles here. Dragonglass, Pate said. The small folk call it dragonglass. Somehow that seemed important. So this is Pate with a rare interaction with the actual conversation actually hitting an important point. And again, always representing the small folk, isn't he, our dear Pate? Next quote here. They do, mused Alaris, the Sphinx. If there are dragons in the world again... Dragons and darker things, said Leo. The grey sheep have closed their eyes, but the mastiff sees the truth. Old powers waken, shadows stir. An age of wonder and terror will soon be upon us. An age for gods and heroes. He stretched, smiling his lazy smile. That's worth a round, I'd say. So again, Alirus, Sorella, clearly thinking on how this could make an advantage to Dawn. I wonder how close she actually is to Duran, and, or is she only close to fellow sand snakes, or even them at all, or maybe someone else, again, who knows. 
But Leo is confirming what we said earlier. This is the mix of the overall and important and magical through the lens of the normal. And Pete, he has some thoughts on Leo during this little stretch as well. And really what it boils down to is small folk versus highborn. The small folk can't win. Paint can't win because he doesn't have the surname. In fact, he's got the most common name, as Leo points out. Whereas Leo had a very special name. It reminds me of Rolly Duckfield's story about when he's the smith to the, uh, the Lord's son. That he'll tell us in dance that you know, it's, it's just not fair. And that's a lot of the themes that we'll see in this, this book going forward. Now, I, I realise there's a lot more to go through in this POV, this prologue, but already at an hour and a half here and we're still on the first of our three chapters so i'm going to kind of skip ahead and miss a little bit out what i do want to talk about is a little bit about rosie i think we've got the point about paint being not very enlightened and really quite sexist and all these other things about his approach and his thinking of rosie but also just to look here from the other angle the selling of rosie's virginity by her mother is spoken of so naturally in this chapter it's almost easy for it to slip under the surface again maybe that comes up more on the reread like we said and it's the setting of a theme. We're going to be dealing with many more sex workers and the institutions or situations that require them as we go through this this book. And we did have a lot of shade talk at the end of Storm. But again, we aren't in a war-terrorised Riverlands at the moment. This is just the normal way of life in Old Town. So there's a lot that could be said here on the prizing of a young girl's virginity and a mother who is apparently willing to sell such a thing. We don't really get that much information on what the actual situation is regarding that. I suppose it ties in slightly to that lie for a noble purpose argument. Rosie's mother perhaps thinks she's doing a good thing for her daughter, that this will set her up, give her her best chance, etc. Or maybe she just wants to make a good profit. Who can say in this world? But it's worth noting that this type of thing goes on with every nobility of terms of daughters and marriage alliances and being sold. Let's not come down too hard on her mother when we don't really know the situation. So... So that'll do for Rosie right now. Let's skip ahead a little bit to kind of the ending. We've already touched on this, but Jacken, if we're going to say it's Jacken, I personally do think it's him, gaining this key and access to whatever's in the Citadel could have major influence on global events. And again, I personally could easily imagine an ending where Danny and her dragons ultimately save humanity from the others, only for them, or for at least the dragons, to be destroyed by the Maesters or the Faceless Men, or both. There's plenty of evidence to suggest either but whatever that amounts to this is obviously going to be really important and it all eventually comes down to a young guy who just wants a girl to be his so it's the ultimate example of george being able to write both large and small at the same time and we have so much evidence for being jacken and for being faceless men intertwined with the coin with face changing obviously there's also this last line this last quote a stranger no one truly yeah that really gets through to it and the mind just keeps swirling around of all the possibilities. Now, just to end this chapter, I'm going to point out that Rosie knows of the meeting between Pate and the alchemist. She's possibly the only one that actually knows. So it'd be interesting if she meets up with Sam at some point and maybe tells the story. I wonder if Rosie does actually want Pate to be the one to buy her maidenhead. We don't know. There's surely worse options out there. For all we know, she completely returns Pate's affection. But again, that doesn't change the... Th- way that Pate views her so it's not a happy ending but I would be very interested to see if we come across Rosie again in the next book if Sam specifically meets her and maybe starts finding out there's some goings on in the Citadel yeah I'm really looking forward to that but time is against us we're really gonna have to move on now because you know, I gotta edit this thing at some point it's gonna have to come out so there's plenty more to be said about Pate and the prologue but I'm sure Aziz covered it all anyway let's move on to our first actual chapter our first real chapter of the book is Aaron, or, or to give its proper title, 
the profit. So this is a complete change in POV status. Up to now, we've never really had POVs that we're supposed to outright dislike. We might have thought that was the point of adding Jamie and Storm, but very quickly we showed otherwise, but you know, there's more to him than that. Whereas this kind of character is more akin to a prologue slash epilogue like Merit or Chet or Varamir. We're going to have that a bit with Victarion as well, but more so with Aeron, I think. Is he the most dislikable of all POV characters? It's pretty clear, in my opinion, that he is. I really do not like this guy. I don't like his chapters, or at least this one, because this one really sticks out for Aeron being awful. At least later, in his second one, in The Drowned Man, we'll have the heavy plot of the King's Moot to concentrate on and get the focus off Aeron himself. And it's the same for the Forsaken chapter, for any of you who have read that. The intrigue there is high enough that we don't have to look too closely on Aeron's personality, plus he's getting tortured, abused at the entire time, so that kind of robs it away. But in this one, the plot is much lower, or not present, so we get a way bigger Aeron kick to really introduce him to us, and... It's a bit insufferable for my taste. I have to say, this probably is my least favourite chapter of all the Song of Ice and Fire. I just do not like it. I do not like him. I don't like the setting. I don't like any of it. Yeah, so if I speed through this one, well, I hope I do because recording is currently an hour 40 minutes. But also, it's just because I don't like him. Having said that, there's plenty to be said. And I think the first one is that I can see why this is a harsh first chapter as an introduction to this new book. I can imagine... Being a first-time reader and you want to find all these things like we said about earlier, but also you just have this really intriguing prologue of all these possibilities and stuff, and then you get Aeron and this horrible religious nutcase and this horrible setting dark and grey and horrible, and it kind of gets you off on the wrong foot, so I do see where people are coming from in that regard. First quote for this chapter. The prophet was drowning men on Great Wick when they came to tell him the king was dead. So this is our first really obvious foray into some chapters being really out of whack time-wise. This chapter takes place halfway through Storm of Swords, according to the, the true timeline that I've referenced many times. It's around the time that Aya is kidnapped by Sandok again, so that seems ages ago to us as readers. But again, it's something else we'll have to get used to in this book. And not that uh, chapters weren't out of timeline previously, especially in terms of Daenerys, but very, very different here. Much different. As openings go, pretty on point. We begin with a pointless scene of someone drowning someone else needlessly in the name of their god. We begin with Aeron trying to murder someone. Let's put it as simply as that. He's trying to murder a young boy. And uh, this kind of ritual, it sums up the Ironborn and their history pretty well. It's self-defeating, it's stubborn, and like I say, ultimately pointless. We have a naked boy struggling to breathe, to live, only to be weighed down by years of Ironborn slash religious stupidity. We can link that to Theon pretty easily, whose undoing came from that same need to prove himself true Ironborn. That's what's happening to this boy. He's trying to prove himself, and Aeron is trying to prove him an, an Ironborn. <sighs> yeah, it doesn't leave us in doubt of Aeron's mental state. He thinks of the boy as a wretch for wanting to live. He thinks that oxygen leaving the boy is actually his faith coming, coming out. And yeah, <laughs> I'm not uh, at home with this practice of this opening scene. I don't like the seeing a child try and be murdered. Is uh, It rubs me up the wrong way. But the themes do interlink because a lot here is about rebirth being so important to this ritual and to Aeron specifically, who's lived through it in his life. And that tracks out to the overall Ironborn storyline of they are going to be reborn soon enough on the national stage, especially in regards to the South and the Reach. You know, the Ironborn have kind of been dormant for a long time. Then Euron comes along 
has his own deal with childhood rebirth as well and restarts this new ironborn age where they're sweeping south and actually having massive success and they're not just coming for raids they're coming for conquering basically so i can see why this scene is uh, included next quote that was when the damp hair realized that three horsemen had joined his drowned men on the pebbled shore this line really sticks out to me for setting the ominous tone of aaron's opening really puts me in mind of the four horsemen appearing to watch as if nature knows that this is evil and an unnatural thing going on one that aaron glories in now the boy does live so okay that's good but it's almost kind of annoying as a reader because it continues to prove aaron right and validates this crazy ritual that it works apparently and of course it has the victims buy into it as well so it makes you wonder how many ironborn are wandering around with seriously diminished mental capabilities due to this oxen deprivation because the boy is he's out for quite a while he kind of dies and then gets brought back so hmm the claim of never losing a man is also surprising. I guess Aaron has just accidentally stumbled onto a decent CPR. But just think how many have been lost to other priests, both now and through the decades, the centuries of this practice. I don't want to think about that. And something to focus on as we go that I've forgotten you might have an answer for, and maybe we do find out later. Is this drowning ritual only reserved for males? Off the top of my head, I really can't remember them mentioning it to do with women, but... Again, we'll have to watch for that, especially when we get to Ash's chapter. Maybe that is mentioned. Please do correct me. So these lords have brought the news to Aaron about Balon, and we get our first example of how Aaron holds himself above just petty lords, as he calls them, and basically ignores the general social structure. He's outside it, because he demands the best horse, etc., which is pretty funny, actually, considering he's already a Greyjoy, so he already has the capability to lord it over everyone and treat everyone how he wishes, but that never comes into it. He doesn't really refer to his surname at all. It's his religion that puts him above all others. It's his state in the uh, religious structure, in his opinion at least. Recall that the Ironborn command structure is very different to what we know. Every captain is a king aboard his ship and so on. They have the king's boot. They can call each other out much more than elsewhere in Westeros. But they don't with Aeron because religion is something separate and almost more in tone than societal structure. They do not mess with him. No way. The other interesting bit is we have this thought of this recall, this memory from Aeron, where Balon apparently was already on the downturn, even before getting pushed off a bridge. And Aeron wasn't away on the war campaign all that long, on the stony shore, I think that's where he goes. But it seems Balon's white hair and stoop came on pretty fast from the last time we saw him in Clash. Was that just stress and worry over the war effort? Could it even be possible he felt guilt over what happened to Theon when he finds out about that? Well, I doubt it, because Aeron also has memories of discussing Fion with Balon in a couple of pages' times, and all the thoughts are aimed more towards Asher. She's the one that Balon cherishes, so unfortunately not. So we have Aeron taking his horse and begins his little journey over Great Wick, and, well, we have this quote as well. Grold's folk toiled down in Grold's mines, in the stony dark beneath the earth. Some lived and died without setting eyes upon salt water. Wow, okay, so Good Brother is a cheery name for what sounds like a pretty horrible experience if you're sworn to the, that particular family. That seems like a pretty awful existence. A little bit like Valeria there as well. But we're beginning to look at some of the wider Iron Island geography, which we'll get a surprising amount of in this book, because in contrast to the storyline, we don't actually get to go anywhere near Pike, as Fionn did when he introduced us to the area before, but all everywhere else, Great Wick and Old Wick, etc., Baron then moves on to some family history with Quellon, his father, who is actually one of the more interesting ironborn that history has for us. But his father only really gets a mention. 
Aaron is thinking about his brothers, his surviving brothers, and we get to see some of that abused survivor mentality come out in him when he thinks about how Balon never cared for him in the slightest, yet Aaron still admires him merely for how fierce he was in trying to reinstate the old way. It's interesting how this dynamic probably plays over both sides of Aaron's lives, pre-drowning and post. We don't have all the clues for his incredibly complicated relationship with his other brothers, particularly Euron, just yet, but this is in keeping both as a young brother looking up to the eldest and strongest, or an abused boy admiring the one who can keep his abuser in check, and as the born-again zealot who will champion the old way above any other issue because of how closely it ties into his religion. Note that Aaron doesn't state his own accomplishments, he lists Balon's. That fits with his personality going forward. He's the brother who steps out of the limelight and pushes the others forward, as will happen publicly in chapters to come. Now we arrive at the castle of House Goodbrother, the Hammerhorn. Good name, like that name. And we have this quote. Gerald Goodbrother himself was talking quietly with a slim man in fine grey robes, who wore about his neck a chain of many metals that marked him for a maester of the citadel. I forgot that we had so much focus on the maester in this chapter, and it's pretty fitting following the Old Town intro we just had. They are everywhere, like we said. We are supposed to be noticing them much more now, thanks to that chapter. But Aaron throws a strop when the maester is not sent away, so it's another hint to the stubbornness and the haughtiness that he carries, and the pure lack of logic he has in matters such as these, because he threatens to just go. Again, it's not hard to see why the Iron Islands has turned out the way it has. Here's an Aaron thought about the maester specifically. No proper man would choose a life of thraldom, nor forge a chain of servitude to wear about his throat. Okay, so we're talking about chains. So that's a bit of foreshadowing to Aaron's eventual fate in the Forsaken. Chains and servitude are coming his way. But it's also a strange attitude for him to take, seeing as he considers himself a servant of the drowned god. He is a life of servitude. Unfortunately, that's terribly ironic considering he will end up a servant to a man who considers himself a deity. Mm. Oh dear. So Aaron is in the middle of his strop, he's threatening to go, and then the maester brings this news of Euron. We've already had Balon news, now we've got Euron news. And... Well, Aaron, he replies like this. Tell me, he said hoarsely. Now, for us, we've already had this news. We've already, if you remember, heard it through Catelyn's POV when Rob hears it from the captain of the Miraham. But what did that really mean to us back then? We, we've had some thoughts on Euron from Theon, but really, we had nothing. We don't know what effect Euron's claiming of the Sea Stone Chair will have or how we should feel about it. So the addition of the word hoarsely is great here. We've just seen Aaron stick it to lords and sons and maesters. He's obviously not an easily flummoxed person, but he hears this one name and it has him shook already, so that tells us quite a lot. And that puts us to the setting up of the first half of the Ironborn plot in this book. It's quite easy to divide before King's Moot and after King's Moot, but for now, we have this setup. Who is going to be king? And and we get a little bit of a rundown of the candidates from Aaron here. Will it be Euron? Will it be Victorion? Will it be Asher? And I love the build-up of Asher personally because I just love her as a character. Cannot wait to get to that chapter. Even if Aaron does immediately discount her due to her gender here. Thanks, Aaron. Uh, but yeah, like I say, she's going to be a big presence later, so I'm looking forward to that. Meanwhile, Aaron argues with the Maester about Greenland law, even though in that moment the Maester is supporting Aaron, saying that Euron shouldn't be king. Again, just proving how difficult it is to work with this guy. Victarion also we know basically nothing about at this point, save that he's quite good militarily wise. That's not a word, is it? Militarily? It is now. Euron has been mentioned seven times prior to this book. Victarion, only 12, so it's not that big of a difference. And like I said earlier, it is very, very easy to forget that we have actually met Victarion on page back when Theon came to Pike's Great Hall for the feast. 
Safe to say he didn't get to make much of an impression back then. We hear about Sir Wayne Botley, which sounds like I'm saying Sir Wayne, but it's not. It's Sir Wayne Botley. He's drowned in a cask of seawater. He's drowned specifically because he said Fionn should be heir. Now we should remember that, I think, because it proves there are people who think this way, even if they're keeping it quiet for now. That might be important later on, come wins and come Fionn's eventual fate. Maybe not, but we should pay attention. Here's a quote about this this particular incident. Ironborn must not spill the blood of Ironborn. He had Sir Wayne Botley drowned for saying that the sea stone chair by rights belonged to Fionn. If he was drowned, no blood was shed, said Aaron. The maester and the lord exchanged a look. This is maybe the best representation we get of why Aaron is so foolish and irritating. The literalness with which he takes his holy words, the removal of logic and the roadblocks that creates in progressing or problem solving in real life, is tough to swallow. And I love that we get Good Brother and his maester kind of side-eyeing each other and looking at this guy and basically thinking, is he for real? Is he serious? He is declaring that Ironborn must not kill each other. That's a good rule. Well done, everyone. That's a very good rule. They have this massive history of infighting, and they might actually be a stronger unit together if they have this rule. Oh, but drowning's okay. Just make sure not to nick him with your blade as you dunk him under. The result is the same. The guy still dies, but now they can make the claim it's nice and legal because you happen to kill him in the same way we do for our religion. That's frustrating to me. Really, it really is, let alone the maester and, uh, and good brother here. It's a very similar rule to the Dothraki, just one of several comparisons people like to point out about the two groups. Both have rules about not killing in certain ways or in certain areas, and both have their loopholes. Ironborn get to drown. Dothraki, they get to burn, apparently, for Viserys. The idea of either concept is at direct odds with the North slash First Men and their obsession with blood. If we believe blood is truly magical, and bear in mind we have kind of seen it work, the Ironborn obviously aren't historically linked to that eerie slash magical side of things, which makes it even more significant when Euron comes along because he's obviously delved quite deep into that particular cask. When God Good Brother asks for counsel of who to support, we see the situation zoom out from just the Greyjoy family. This is a critical point for the Iron Islands as a whole. A transfer of power from one person to another, which made on to Euron in this case, can be difficult enough. But now we see candidates popping up all over the place, each with their own at least semi-valid claims. They've all got a point. And isn't that just the War of the Five Kings again? Just like a smaller version? We're just repeating what we've already seen, as history does like to do. I think small folk on the Iron Islands are pretty screwed anyway, whether kings were changing or not. It seems like a horrible existence. But again, if this goes wrong... It could mean blood, left, right and centre. We've certainly seen it before on the Iron Islands. So all the lords, all the Iron Lords, if they're called that, are facing the same choices of those in the Stormlands a couple of years ago, or the same as everyone did in Robert's Rebellion, or when the Blackfires come knocking. Who do I support? Who would actually be best? Who are the gods like? Most importantly, what choice is going to keep my family and my people safe? The questions don't come much bigger than that, so we can see why it's so monumental for the Iron Islands at this time. And actually, the Merlin, <laughs> which is a good name, he sums this up pretty well in a few pages' time. He says, You Krakens have too many arms. You pull a man to pieces. That's exactly what's going on here. All the graduates are popping up. No one knows who they should be going to. This could go bad. Instead of giving actual advice, Aaron takes one last chance for yelling at the maester, again offsetting this little war we have between the intellectual and the spiritual that seems to have been set up early in this book. We have this quote. His own voice rang in that smoky hall. So full of power that neither Goral Goodbrother nor his maester dared reply. Also, pretty self-serving and arrogant. I really do not like this guy. On top of the yelling, we also see the idea of the king's moot be born in Aaron's mind, even if he can't frame it that way quite yet. 
but my first instinct of this is seeing a zealot turn a very dicey situation to his own end in order to promote the drowned god. But with further reflection, it's actually a great idea for avoiding that potential civil war we just talked about and the bloodshed that will come with it. If you just leave it as it is, and all the candidates come home at once and start vying for the Seastone chair, and don't forget, more candidates begets more candidates and lowers the legitimacy of the ruling station. You're just going to have more non-Greyjoy starting off as well. Again, refer to the War of the Five Kings for evidence on how that works. So by providing the King's Moot, the Ironborn, such as Gold Goodbrother, have a legitimate reason for holding back for now and not outright declaring for someone just yet, the violence is replaced by discussion, in theory, and the eventual result is inarguable, again, in theory. Because someone has been chosen rather than simply taken power. Now, say what you want about the Ironborn, but this is one of the better systems in Westeros, although not without its flaws, as we shall come to see later in Aeron's next chapter. It's also incredibly unifying for a more often than not divided community. The irony is, Aeron sees it as a potential to promoting the Drown God, when it actually goes the other way with the result. But we'll talk about that when we come to it. Good Brother is probably pretty happy to get this guy out of his castle. And on the right of Pebbleton, Aeron dreams of his childhood again. We'll have this quote that's going to come up again and again. The sound came softly, the scream of a rusted hinge. Yuri, he muttered. Yeah, that's going to turn out to be a pretty major, incredibly layered line that will need a lot of discussion later on. But really right now, we don't know the significance of it just yet. Instead, we find that the grudge against maesters is actually much more personal and predates Aeron's religious rebirth. And there's a link there about hands and the use of maesters slash religion, because Victarion will also gain a hand injury later on and opt for a spiritual, magical healing over that of a maester. So that's quite interesting that we're finding that out about Yuri and how he died. Crucially, we're enlightened on Aeron before his near drowning. We got the bare bones of this prior, but we can now see that Aeron is trying to drink and party away his guilt over it being his axe that took Yuri's fingers and, indirectly, his life. Clearly, the booze and lifestyle did not take the guilt away, so when another opportunity came up in the form of religion and penance and servitude, Aeron leapt at it. This thinking also allows comparison to another four-brother set, one that grew up just a few miles south on the Sunset Sea, the Lannisters. Balon is the Tywin, the serious one in charge. Victarion is the Tiger, the one of the military mind who does what he's told. And Aeron is the Gerion, or Gerion, the youngest who likes to mock the game rather than play it, as Jenna Lannister said. The outlier, obviously, is Euron, who fits in no category anywhere for any family. We could even say that Victarion is the Kevin in terms of loyalty and obedience, but yeah, there's just no comparison for Aeron anyway. Although, Gerion did go sailing off around the world, so... If you really want to make a connection, there it is. It should also not be forgotten that while Aeron did nearly drown, he was also imprisoned and chained to a wall for the remainder of the rebellion, sure as it was. So it would be fools to think that such an experience didn't play a huge part in readjusting his psyche, however much he wants to attribute it to the waves alone. Aeron uses these memories and musings to make his own selection for who to back. Yes, the King's Moot is technically open to anybody, but to Aeron it is a vehicle for ensuring he gets who he wants upon the Seastone chair. Not a woman like Asher, not a cripple like Fion, not a mad person like Euron, but Victarion. And why? Well, simply, mainly, because he's not Euron. But also because he is the most like Balon, which was the rock in Aeron's sea. So we get to Pebbleton and Aeron's people are there, and we have this quote about them. Those hands gripped driftwood cudgels hard as iron, for the god had armed them from his arsenal beneath the sea. So another thematic link between this and the small folk slash the religious being armed in King's Landing later in the book. 
A lot of this part of the chapter is on the gathering of the small folk and how quickly the tide is building. When the Merlin comes, and again, you know I like that name, we find out Asher is back and also gathering supporters. Euron, who's already made his big move, now Aeron has done the same thing in rousing the people. Clearly, he's not actually convinced of Vectaeron yet. He keeps asking himself again and again, who should be king, even though he comes up with the same answer. Subconsciously, I think a large part of it is wanting the strongest, most Balon-like person, again, like we said, to defend him against Euron, while also worrying he's not actually up to the task. It's not until he goes into the sea himself that Aeron starts listening to the idea he's already had about the king's move. And this is also our first hint of Euron and Victarion clashing and of the woman between them. It's a long time before we actually find out like that. And while I'm talking about Merlin, we also get the name Meldred. Yeah, that's quite the combo if you're a fan of Arthurian tales, as I am. So the King's Moot is set. We now know the direction of the Ironborn storyline, even if first-time readers are unaware we'll have to wait 17 chapters to actually see it, though we are lucky enough to get the Asher chapter in there in the meantime. There's an interesting what-if where we can wonder what would have happened if Aeron had simply declared Victorian outright instead of championing the King's Moot. As said earlier though, I can see the advantage of doing it this way. It gets everyone in the mood for the Drown God, that's always first priority, but also points them towards the old way, something that Aeron is invested in and that Balon and Victarion both champion, so it seems like he's got a good chance. Still, there is a risk, and we know it's one that's going to be exposed. If this chapter has shown us anything, however, it's that logic doesn't really have a place in this particular POV. Luckily, we've only got one more to go, and it's one I enjoy much more. So, thanks for that, Aeron. No thank you again. So, let's go to our final chapter of the day. It's Aereo Hotar, or, as the official title, The Captain of the Guards. So yes, this is our introduction to the camera that rides. I actually quite like Aereo myself. Definitely the most likeable so far in this book, in my opinion. Although I do see what people say about his potential arc seeming fairly short. I think that's the main criticism against Aereo Hotar as a POV, as a character. Where is he actually going? How is he going to fit into the story of the future other than as a witness to other important characters? Because you can't really foresee him getting more than a chapter or two in wins, can you? You'd think he'd be near the bottom of the list anyway. But for potential, he could fail in his duty to protect Duran. He could be a victim of the Sand Snakes. He could ultimately save Duran. But really, we can't see him doing much else other than something of what he's been doing so far. I guess we'll come to that as we go through the chapter. So we've had the opener for the Iron Islands, and now we have the same for Dawn. And this one seems much more rooted than Aaron's. I like this chapter quite a lot, actually. That previous chapter was about Aaron, the character, and the coming of Euron, and then the wider Iron Island situation at the end. And okay, we do get Pebbleton and Hammerhorn, but they don't seem as important. I don't see how, why we should care about them so much. Here we get the Water Gardens, our intro to Sunspear, a little bit of Ariane, Doran, and crucially, the Sand Snakes. To me, it is far more memorable and a much more enjoyable chapter. I like the structure. We gradually meet Sand Snake by Sand Snake. We get the mystery of Duran and why he's like he is and what, what's going to happen. And yeah, we get these little hints of the future storyline, Ariane and the Cellar and the Ares. And, and okay, yes, Aria Hotard just got to watch all this, but I like it. I, I like the way it's set up. So let's delve into it, shall we? Very early on, we get this quote. After that, he did not speak again for hours. That's a pretty great line for getting across who Duran is as a person, of setting a whole new atmosphere. This is what it seems like for the Sand Snakes and for Ariane, and for the Shadow City as a whole. You get one simple, gentle line out of the guy and then nothing for hours, just boring silence. So we can patch that out to his wider politics, to switch the hours for years. 
The silence is just the same. That's what everyone's hearing from Durant. Silence, and it infuriates them, as we'll see. The focus on this first page is on the oranges and how they're growing and ripening and then splatting. So you can kind of look at that as the plans of Duran Motel. Again, they grow and they ripen for years on end. And now it's finally the time to put some into place. But some are also going to end up as splats on the floor. So I think we can see the symbolism there. Now, as we go, let me mention Maester Calliot. Calliot? I'm going with Calliot. He's hardly a major player in this chapter. He is present for a lot of it. But it's worth noting that, again, the Maesters are here. So they have quite a run at the beginning of this book. Ario does mention that Caliot, Caliot served Duran's mother, so even if he does nothing else in the series, maybe he will finally be able to tell us Lady Martel's name. That would be quite the prize. So yes, please, Caliot, do that for us, please. Now we don't waste time in getting to our first sand snake. Clearly, George is impatient to get this storyline going, and we get Obara first with this quote: "Obara sand always walked too fast." She is chasing after something she can never catch, the prince had told his daughter once. Okay, so we know Duran clearly thinks on analyzes everybody. Even if he doesn't say anything, he knows, he watches. He sifts out their motivations and what that can mean going forward. He is always, always thinking or considering. Next quote. Quick and strong as she was, the woman was no match for him, he knew. But she did not, and he had no wish to see her blood upon the pale pink marble. Similarities there to Aaron in terms of the self-confidence, but it comes off a lot better on Ario. Likely because it's not arrogance here. He doesn't believe himself more important or above the Sand Snakes. He's just stating a fact about his ability. And we know he's probably in the right as well. So far, we know he's pretty good as a fighter. Other similarities between this and Aaron's chapter in that we are again reacting to news we already found out about in Storm. This time it's much more significant news than something we were actually present for. The fight between Oberyn and the Mountain, how that ended up. And that whole fight was so jaw-dropping. Or jaw smashing, perhaps. I probably shouldn't say that. And we had so much else to think about at the time that we never really got to think of the possible ramifications down south. Recall that it was Dawn's reaction to Oberyn's death that seemingly ceased the idea of the five-year gap that's been cited numerous times. So perhaps we can refer to this, this part of the chapter, as the true birth of A Feast for Crows. I do think there's quite a beautiful passage on Duran Hairways, even patient in opening the letter detailing Oberyn's death. This soon. Great scene setting, great showing of Duran's nature, and some great emotion to remind us that this man lost a brother when he's already lost a sister, a mother, and essentially a wife as well. And I think it, it paints the whole chapter, because this is a chapter about reactions. It's about the Shadow City and about the Sand Snake's reactions to this news, but we're seeing it through the viewpoint of the one man who isn't having a reaction in Area Hotai. He's just bland. Or two men, I guess, because it seems that's what Duran is like as well, even though we know he's really not. Differing types of reaction, all actually focused on the same thing, even if we don't know it quite yet. Vengeance, that's what everyone's really thinking of, apart, again, from Ario. Next quote. Silence is a prince's friend, the captain had heard him tell his daughter once. Words are like arrows, Ariane. Once loosed, you cannot call them back. So that's twice in the first three pages. We've got instances of Ario remembering Duran giving Ariane pretty sage advice. We don't know when he was giving this advice. You'd think before he left Sunspear and before Ariane misinterpreted the found letter to Quentin, but he was obviously grooming her for rule, so we should put stock in that. Another quote here. And how could you hope to hold Old Town? It will be enough to sack it. The wealth of Hightower. Is it gold you want? It is blood I want. So we're only two chapters in, and we're already talking about burning Old Town. So all those worries we had in the prologue are already looking pretty strong. But the more important part of this quote is the end. There is no tactical or even financial reason for Obara's want to attack Old Town, as she outlines here. She just wants the blood and death and the feeling of vengeance. 
Now, we already know vengeance is a major theme throughout the entire series, but the idea of only wanting blood is particularly strong when considering feast. We're going to see a lot of that at the end of the cycle and the need for violence. Having said that, we'll also find in a few pages that Obara likely wants to strike at Old Town because she has some unresolved issues from her youth and Old Town being her place of birth. She hates the city, so she's trying to kill two birds with one stone here. Oberyn did not have any quarrel with Old Town, as far as we know. Old Town certainly did not kill Oberyn, so why should avenging him involve sacking the city? Partly because Obara is frustrated and just wants to kill something, partly because she really hates that city. Duran's reaction to this uh, asking for war is to make her look at the children. He commands it. The water gardens are pretty special. Are they the happiest place in Westeros? It seems like it. There's a good reason to love Duran. He is quite the anomaly in wanting to protect the life that's still there. And there's a lot of themes that people can people can have extracted from the water gardens as a, as a symbol. So I'll, I'll leave that to them. Consider that although Obara is the first sand snake to appear and the first to disappear, in terms of Ario's future, she will be the last one connected with him, as this is the one that Ario goes off hunting Darkstar with in the Winds of Winter, along with Sir Balon Swan. So that's pretty interesting. We're going to get more Obara. We're pretty much confirmed if we get Ario POV. So Duran has been absent from Sunsphere for two years. He's been here at the Water Gardens enjoying the, the watching. Uh, it's a big absence for a head of state, isn't it? So this would probably only work at Sunspear or at Winterfell, or maybe the Eerie in Winterfell. Well, definitely the Eerie in Winter because no one's there, so that, that's fair enough. Everywhere else is too immersed in their surrounding geography. And like I say, it's a pretty big deal. It's allowed Ariane to figure herself able to pull anything off. That's where she's got her confidence. She's been running Sunspear, essentially. And actually, it says a lot about Duran's level of control that there hasn't been more infighting or more power grabbing while he's been away. Although, as detailed here, we find it's actually necessary to prevent any perceived weakness. That's why he's doing it. So that can have us worrying about how United Dawn might actually be, especially when we throw in these inflamed small folk and what they're all wanting. Next, we have Ario thinking about Marcella and Ares Oakheart, and we have this quote. One day, he sensed, the two of them would fight. On that day, Oakheart would die, with the captain's long axe crashing through his skull. He slid his hand along the smooth ashen shaft of his axe and wondered if that day was drawing nigh. Well... Should we call that foreshadowing? It seems like more than foreshadowing to me. It's dead on. Great guess. But again, he doesn't take any ego or honour in it. He just thinks on facts that he is better, just like with Obara. And again, you would think that points to Ario eventually having to lose at the end of his arc. It would be pretty interesting if he sees someone and he's aware he's going to lose and he's come up against a better fighter finally, yet doing his duty anyway. That would be a bit of a Brienne theme there, wouldn't it? No chance, no choice. That would certainly make for a great read. I do like Ario specifically thinking of Ares as the White Knight as well. Ario is probably just doing that because he's a pretty literal guy and Ares wears white. But we can look at it as a shining White Knight, normally representing the clean-cut hero who saves the day. Ares's, Ares's upcoming chapter is all about not being clean-cut at all, and he certainly doesn't end up saving the day, quite the opposite. Okay, back to Duran for the next quote here. I was the oldest, the prince said, and yet I am the last. That's a bit of a haunting quote there. It's another beautiful, very emotional passage where we're delving into Duran's psyche and understanding his pain and why he is the way he is. He cherished both Elia and Oberyn because it was such a long shot for them to turn up in the first place. Yet he's had to deal with the pain of losing both now for many years. That's something unnatural. If you were the elder, you were supposed to not have to watch your family die around you. That's the benefit of being the eldest. But some evil has come and bestowed that on you now. So it fits perfectly into why he is so patient and planning because he knows if it goes wrong, it will likely be his own children and the children he sees playing in the pools who will suffer. 
he will probably be the last to go and we'll have to watch it and suffer all that pain, so he's not going to do it. Essentially, time is different for Duran. He's looking at the children in the pools and he sees grown-up adults that have already passed on. He knows how fleeting these years are and how quickly they can be wiped away. It's an awful lot for him to bear, but not surprising that the orange splats make him wince. But now it's time to leave the water garden to return to Sunspear, and I want to point out that only 10 guards remain at the water garden. Though, I hope that doesn't prove not enough in the future. I would not want to read that chapter. There's also some world building here from, from Aria about Norvos, but I'm going to skip over that largely and, and head to our second sand snake that we meet up on the road, Lady Nim, Lady Nymeria. So it seems we're going in descending age order. Here's the next oldest. And this seems that there are two subsets linking the sand snakes that we meet. Nim and Nobara as the elders, then Tyene and Ariane being the youngers. All are very different, but it seems like these pairs have the most similarities with each other. So this quote comes from Nymeria is interesting. She hates that city as much as our little sister loves it. So okay, confirmation on what we said about Ibarra, and a very easy to miss hint about Sorella. Yeah, very easy to miss. What does Nymeria want? The same as Ibarra, she just wants to pay for it differently. Again, the word is vengeance. She even has an itemised bill. Cersei and Jaime for Aegon and Rhaenys. Tywin for Elia. Okay, we can see where you're coming from there. That seems pretty fair. But she also demands Tommen, a boy who's not only innocent as a child, but whose kingship is also technically fairly innocent so far as well. So that's the cycle right there. Vengeance, for many, isn't vengeance unless you one-up those who wronged you in the first place. Nymeria wants Tommen dead, so then Tommen would have to be avenged, and so on and so forth, and I think we all know that story. It's also pretty rich of her to chastise Tommen for being a bastard, giving her own birth. Okay, now the incest thing is fair enough, but let's not throw stones in glass houses here. We actually focus on bastard children quite a bit in this chapter. We've got the sand snakes, and we've got Tommen and Marcella as well. And focusing on a dead man's bastards is a callback to the early part of the series with Robert. Except it's different in that they're all aware and they love their father. We don't get any of Robert's bastards avenging him or fighting on in his name, at least not knowingly. So the tension is raised here in this chapter because we know what the sand snakes want, we know they're not going to wait. They say it, we're not going to wait for them anymore. So something is obviously going to happen. Now we come to our actual intro to Sunspear and the Shadow City, and I love the architecture, both of the, the city, or the town really, and the castle itself. It's one of the ones I enjoyed describing the most for the Great Castles of Westeros. Really liked um, looking that up. I love the design. I love the threshold gate. That's very, very clever. And this is actually the last Great Castle we are ever introduced to, which is sad. And it's the first since we kind of visited Storm's End in Clash. So that's pretty monumental. The last Great Castle that we ever meet so far in the series. Now, you would think, I think George has mentioned, we still got Castle Rock to go. We still have Highgarden to go and we're going to be reintroduced to Winterfell in the next book. And also we might actually get to go in Storm's End, that's uh, fingers crossed for that. Still, pretty significant moment. But we also get an introduction to Arianne. Now this particular chapter doesn't give many hints to assume she's going to be a major player going forward, but we can probably guess just because she is Duran's daughter, she's probably going to be important. The other one we get is a reintroduction, this time it's to Marcella. It's been quite a while since we've seen her, and probably it's quite easy to forget about her being down here. She was almost off the map until Oberyn showed up and Tyrion started talking about his options right at the end of Storm. That's the same place we get the first hints of the Crown Marcella storyline, and that actually turns out to be one of the more concurrent storylines running through both Feast and Dance, at least early on when Tyrion thinks about it in his first few dance chapters. The last, the youngest, and the most different of the Sand Snakes so far is Tyene, and she comes up here in the Solar. Give you three guesses what she's asking for. Should bear in mind that as confident and self-reliant as these three Sand Snakes are, 
All of them are still asking for permission to do whatever they want to do. The only one who doesn't, Ariane. She just goes and does it. Again, the avenue to war is different. Tyene wants to crown Marcella and wants to use what they've got. Hurt Cersei through the loss of a child, which would definitely work. Tyene has the sweet words, Pearl Gold is just the same. It's interesting that Duran is more brusque with her than the others. That this has clearly been cooked up in conjunction with Ariane, that's why we see the continuation of this going on later on. But really, let's look at Tyene. She's the most viper-like of them all. We don't see her fangs until it's too late. I love that uh, Kaliot reaction after Tyene leaves, where he goes and makes sure she hasn't even scratched Dram, because that's how dangerous she is. That's going to be good to see in King's Landing. We're going to be wondering about every single physical interaction she has. We look forward to that, yes. So the three options that the Sand Snakes have given here, they represent the type of possibilities that Duran has already been going over again and again in his mind for the last 20 years. He's likely already thought of a potential place for them to actually affect his plan, and he gives in by dance. And I guess that we should point out that both of our first two chapters here both speak about crowning Kingsmoot and Missella. Yeah, that's a bit of a comparison. Sansinks themselves give hints of Oberyn's past. Old Town as a maester, Volantis or someone near it, and a scepter, I suppose, could be anywhere. I'm talking about the respective mothers of these girls. So we can just kind of trace a little map of where Oberyn has been. Now we come to the end of this chapter with this final quote. I only pray Lord Tywin hears them in King's Landing, so he might know what a loyal friend he has in Sunspear. Clearly, that's meant to make the reader wonder about Duran's true intentions and, and loyalties. Is he truly a coward? But we know now he just wants that carefully cultivated part of his plan not to fail because of the Sand Snakes. And I think, everybody, I'm going to leave it there because, as you can probably hear, my voice is failing me and I think my throat is constricting. So, and we have a two hours 28 minutes recording to get through so again really glad my plan to lessen my workload has worked so well never mind next time four chapters let me very very quickly tell you what they are now we have Cersei 1 yes I know you're looking forward to it Brienne 1 Samwell 1 and Aya 1 so we get some of our old favorites back quite different from what we got this time so yes welcome back to a feast for crows I know it's a very difficult time going on out there in the world at the moment stay strong make sure you are supporting the people who should be supported giving voice to those who need it and educating yourselves and others in any way you can please do support the movement okay yeah i'm gonna let you go now see you next time everybody thanks again